You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's Wednesday, so it's time to speak to Joanne Bainham from Sterling Private Wealth in Cape Town. Joanne, the market keeps on going up. We had a little bit of a, a waver last night, but it's nothing much, is it? I mean, it's a pathetically tiny blip on the inexorable rise to ever new highs between now and the end of the year. And when I say rise, I'm talking really about the US markets and in particular the S&P and the NASDAQ. And of course, the Dow Jones trailing behind. Yeah, I mean, markets are, dare I say, boring at the moment. I mean, they're just, you know, everyone's screaming and shouting that valuations are extremes, that we've never seen markets like this. Hmm. And yet the market quite plainly keeps ignoring those warnings and keeps moving higher. So you get these little blips down, but then they sort of, everyone ignores it, buys the dip or tiny move downwards and goes higher. Hmm. I mean, it does feel increasingly scary in stock markets because, you know, how much good news can get priced in. And on top of that, you've got, you know, I was seeing a very interesting thing from John others this morning, mm. that the FANG stocks looked like finally there were there were other leaders in the market. You know, from November last year, post-vaccine, it looked like the value cohort of the cyclical stocks would do better and the FANGs had kind of lost their luster in a sense. Well, actually, after the rally we've seen NASDAQ recently, those FANGs are back to their all-time highs, taking over from everything else. So it's a very... Again, scary word, this boring market. Everybody's just rushing into the same five stocks. It may be boring, but on the other hand, uh, Sterling Private Wealth's clients must be loving this. I mean, we may be bored in our roles as broadcasters of financial news and market news and economic news. But uh, on the other hand, your clients must be just sitting pretty and loving every second of it. Well, the reality is, you know, we can't advise people to be putting all their money into the U.S. stock market at the moment, given the valuation concerns. So, like I say, I use the word boring very loosely because clearly it's not boring. And and it's pretty scary right now because what keeps going up is the stuff that you're most scared of. So, you know, our clients aren't loving it because we're not 100% invested. That's the first thing. We certainly aren't 100% invested in U.S. tech stocks because, you know, valuations are not compelling. And, you know, to go and put more money into a market now that doesn't have the underpin of a good price is very scary right now. So, no, I don't think our our clients are loving it. I mean, I think they're happy they're making money every month. But, you know, that's also in certain parts of the market because in in South Africa, for instance, you were making lots of money until then recently you're not. So, you know, if you were holding NASPERS or Process or you were holding a lot of commodity shares until recently, you haven't made a huge amount of money. So I think, I think, look, markets are always difficult. That's why you and I work in the markets and we try and make sense of it. But but when I say boring, I'm just saying is there's not a lot of value one can add right now because things just get more and more expensive by the day. Yes, they do. Now, you're a person that is a host on Asset TV. Uh, you go to lots of conferences. You engage with fund managers every single day. You just try and gather as much information as you can and impart that information to your clients. Maybe you could impart some of it to us now because I noticed you've been to uh, – you sent a tweet out, I think it was, and you've been to a, a conference. Was it a conference? Tell me about your most recent meeting and most interesting meeting. Okay, so I spent the last two days at a fund house virtual conference where they talk their uh, discretionary fund manager that assists um, sterling with their with their funds and they hosted a conference talking to global and local fund managers and some interesting takeaways from that conference which was you know sort of eight hours in total more or less was and uh, we had schroders um in, like, talking to us yes and one of the one of the graphs that caught my eye was the difference in valuations between the most expensive part of the market and the cheapest part of the market. So the bifurcation between these two sectors or quintiles they talk about. 
And never in the history of kind of recording this data have the most have the expensive stocks been quite this expensive against the cheaper stocks. So if you think about that another way, you know, global stock markets are dominated by the US and dominated by US tech. So that part of the market's never been more expensive than is right now relative to the cheapest parts of the market. So I think from a passive versus active debate, one can say that's probably a lot of opportunities to be had at the moment looking outside these very large companies and maybe looking at some small cap stocks. So, um, you know, cheap isn't cheap is often cheap for a reason, but not everything that's cheap is terrible. So I think that's quite interesting from a value perspective. Um, listening to a local fund managers from 91, they were talking about why they continue to see good opportunities in local shares, SA Inc., that I'm talking about particularly. Uh, they brought up a graph, which I also thought was fascinating, showing how the wallet for South Africans consumers now have increased for the last two years. And they were using it to argue that, you know, retailers could still um, sell to the underlying consumer in South Africa because the underlying consumer had more money in their pocket, which is true. But when you look at the graph, most of that money for this consumer has come through insurance proceeds. And what they're talking about is UIF payments and um, funeral policies. And a lot of that money has come into consumers' pockets. So somebody in the family has died and the consumer's now got more money. And I find that a very terrifying statistic to argue why you should be buying retailers. But the other comment they talked about was social grants, you know, um, basic no. income grants, social grants. And that equally is might be great for a one-year number, but it's not sustainable for the South African economy. We need to see wage growth. That's what we should be looking for to say why we want to be buying SA Inks, not because the government keeps giving people social grants. So that was also quite an interesting stat. Then we had uh, Jonathan Janssen, everyone's favorite um, professor at Salambosch, previous professor at Free State University, trying to, I think, talk up the audience that South Africa isn't all doom and gloom. Um, he tried. Did he have success? Um, not with me, he didn't. I think he might have for some of the people, but uh, he kind of reminded us, and maybe we need to hear this ever so often as Africans, the Rainbow Nation, etc. You know, we've been here before and it's been worse before. That, that seemed to be his key takeaway, that it's been worse, so don't give up hope. I hear South that Africans all the time, and, and, and I'm just sorry to interrupt you, but while it's in my head, people say, well, we've been here before, we've got through it before, and we will get through it again. But meanwhile, everything seems to get a little bit worse. And I'm being nasty now. Okay, let me take employment as the, as the number one uh, metric when it comes to the South African economy, to me anyway, because it's people earning money and putting food on the table. So that is incredibly mm -hmm. important to everybody and important to me when I have a look at the economy and how South Africa is faring from a social and economic point of view. And it's getting worse and worse all the time. So people that say, well, we've had it worse before. No, we haven't. This is the worst. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you're right on the employment side of things. I think maybe he's talking from the political side of things. It has been worse in the past. So I'm not going to argue with him. He's a very clever guy. Mm. But he did go on to say that 78%, 78% of grade fours in this country cannot read for um, to understand what they're reading. I mean, that's a properly terrifying statistic. Really and is. I know I've said that to you before on your show. He went on to say at our current current literacy levels, the way we're growing, it'll take till 2100 until we're at the levels we need to be in this country. <laughs> he actually tripped over the word 2,100. That's, that's what we need to get to. <laughs> that will be the first time South Africa will have the literacy that we need. It's, 17, it's, it's 79 years away, in other words. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's beyond terrifying. Okay, so... Three generations. Okay, you know, you'll employ, mm. 
Now, and your employment issue that you mentioned, I, and I think I said this to you before in your radio programs, it's not so much that South Africans are unemployed, they're unemployable. Uh, and that comes from the fact that our education system is so appalling. So he did mention that our private schools are phenomenal. And apparently even our universities are, are right up there. Apparently we used to be talk about South African universities being the top 10 or top 20. Mm. Now he says we're in the top 200. So <laughs> change right. the scale, things look better. But, 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 you know, equally we know that at sort of the, the lower grassroots levels where people who don't have money, their education is a shambles. And, and COVID's made that worse. He did highlight that COVID's made this worse. O on the plus side, and I, I, we can't forget this. So he, he did, somebody said to him, are oh, we another Zimbabwe? And he said, that's utterly ridiculous. Yes, I agree with and, that. And his reason for saying we're not another Zimbabwe, which is, you know, I think just reminding people that our courts are very impressive still in this country. Um, you know, our, um, our media for better or for worse, are doing quite a good job. So he, he mentions in lots of other despotic countries in the world, media could never question government like it happens here. And, I, and you know, when you go on Twitter, you can see people are free to be anti the ANC. The ANC doesn't have to like it, but, but they are free to express that opinion. So whether it's social media or the normal media, we are able to get that message across. So from that point of view, you know, that's that's pretty impressive. But but I did feel like he was scraping the barrel trying to find something good to say at the moment. Um, but, you know, South Africans, we are naturally often pessimistic and often we've been wrong. This country's proved us differently. Uh, and, you know, you and I talked about this a lot. We still want to make it work. So let's move on from that. What else did I learn from the conference? When I you came away from the conference, did you have any, any bright ideas? In other words, did you say, OK, I'm very enthusiastic about getting as much money overseas as I can, not only because of the South African situation, but also because um, the global market is more fertile. Uh, it's a more fertile uh, hunting ground than the, the South African one is, an ever-shrinking market? Or did you, not find, did you not find anything? And you've got to come away from these conferences and say, OK, it was a lovely two days, but what am I going to do with all that information? Look, I think the key takeaway for me is that value investing, which people have been banging on about for ages, is offering great opportunities. So let me put it a different way. I sit in front of South African fund managers who tell me South African equities offer so much better value than world equities, and they don't even want to have their 30% offshore. They want to go to 25% offshore. Because generally they believe that the returns from local equities will outperform the returns from global equities. And yet when Schroeder's value fund talks about their value opportunity in the world, now clearly South African equities would fall in that value bucket if they're cheap, as, as investors keep telling us. They're looking at one company in South Africa that they're thinking of buying for their fund. And yet, as South Africans, we get told in your Reg 28 portfolios, you can only have 30% offshore and 70% must be in local assets. Yet, when someone with a global hat starts talking, they say, well, maybe I'll buy one South African share. So I think the conversation South Africans have got to have when they look at their money is say, what is my starting point when I look at equities? Is my starting point the JSC or is my starting point the MSCI world? And when I sit in front of clients in terms of trying to get equity-like returns for them, I say, let's start with MSCI World if this is not Reg 28 money. And we are the best places in the world to be. And I'm not saying don't have money in South Africa. I'm saying position it correctly, portfolio position it correctly, size it correctly. So back to your question, Lindsay, in a roundabout fashion, mm. I, I think global value is offering some interesting opportunities because the valuations are quite compelling. We don't know where these markets are going. You know, I mentioned the early start, these markets just keep going up. But they're getting, it's getting more and more uncomfortable by the day. If you buy some of these value companies in the past when markets have corrected, on a three-year view, you've made very good money because what protects you 
is the price you've paid for your assets. When you pay too much money for something, over the long run, you're going to lose money. That's sort of the, the mantra we all believe in. If you can buy these better assets, some good company assets at cheaper prices, uh, I think that's the key takeaway I got from the conference. So, yes, I think South African shares have opportunities but just size it correctly in a portfolio. So I think that's the message. And then um, just on global stuff that I'm noticing at the moment, just some interesting tidbits that you might be interested in. We had that jobs data last week that shocked the market because it was poorer than expectations. And when you say um, that, I just want to quantify what you're, you're saying. It was the U.S. non-farm payrolls number for the month of August, and only 235,000 new jobs were created. I mean, we would uh, eat that up with a spoon in South Africa if we had that sort of number. Uh, but uh, the market was expecting something way, way higher, 600 to 800,000, depending on who you listen to. And, and so, of course, the market was a bit surprised. But COVID sort of starting to exert an influence again, isn't it? I, I'm sure it'll just be fleeting. I hope it'll just be fleeting. But it has started to exert its influence. It has, and we've got now a new Delta variant. I think they're calling it Mu, M-U or something. I don't right. know what they're calling it. Mm. Apparently originally found in Colombia. I don't know, just named as in Africa, but found in Colombia. Who knows? Uh, the reality is I think it's going to have an impact. I think a lot of the reopening trades are starting to disappoint. But what I found more interesting, there was a very good Wall Street Journal on the data that came out in the U.S., is that companies actually want to hire people. They can't find the right people for their jobs. Yes. So there's more job openings than there are people at the moment. The fact that the jobs disappointed wasn't because companies weren't trying to hire. I think it's because there's a skill mismatch at the moment. So one could argue the Fed is being a bit too relaxed on monetary policy because if there's a skills mismatch, interest rate policy will make no difference to those people getting jobs or not. Uh, and you could have the economy running a little bit too hot. So that that's a takeaway that I got out of that. Um, Just before you go on, let's, let's talk sorry. about skills mismatch now, because in the United Kingdom, yes. there are 1,000 too few HGV drivers. Now, HGV stands for heavy goods vehicle. So yes. people can't drive. There aren't enough people to drive lorries. If you've got an HGV license, you can get a sign-on fee of something like £5,000. And then you get this a, a ridiculous amount of money for what is uh, just driving a truck around. I know it's a very skilled job. So any HGV drivers that are listening, I'm not being disparaging at all. But the point is... It's, uh, it's, it's manual labour and the UK doesn't have enough. So already shelves are emptying and they're saying that Christmas isn't going to be Christmas because there's not enough people to drive the trucks to deliver the goods to the toy shops and the food shops and everything. So that is a skills mismatch. So you say, wasn't it fantastic? We've got all these job vacancies on websites. Uh, but on the other hand, there's mm. no, no people that want to do this job. There's no skilled people to do it. It's exactly the same as what you've just been talking about, the mismatch. But you see, that mismatch will also lead to higher wages, won't it? Yes. So so people think that we've got this very high unemployment numbers, and inverted commas, high globally, because remember, they're not used to unemployment like we talk about it. But keeping interest rate policy very low, when actually the economy is closer to full employment than you think, it is a very interesting argument. And I think the Fed might be making a mistake here, but who knows? Um, at the moment, the market's completely convinced the Fed will keep monetary policy loose forever. Uh, and that's why things like the NASDAQ keep going up, because I think interest rate policy will remain low for a very long time. Um, and when you see it again in Europe this morning, uh, Europe, um, <laughs> quite named, why it's named this, I don't know, but European high yield credit or high yield bonds, sorry, yeah. are giving you yields at the moment of 2.3%. And European inflation, latest inflation data was 3%. 
So you mm. you at the moment, if you buy that stuff, you are getting a negative real rate, and high yields often very short term, and, yeah. and also high yields often very short term duration. So, so those who argue, well, inflation won't be around in five years' time, chances are the high yield debt instrument you own won't be either. So you you are literally buying something below inflation at the moment, which is also another sign of madness we're seeing in markets. And then the final thing that I saw this week that I think is classic, um, our fi- one of our finance ministers in South Africa, deputy finance minister, finance minister, I don't know his name, he said that um, maybe from a climate change perspective, uh, people should forgive um, ESCOM its debt. Now, this Sorry, is quite what? an interesting step. For, for, forgive, it, forgive its debt? You mean write yeah, it off? So, yeah, write it off. And I think this is quite genius, actually, of him, to be honest. Um, if you think about it, if those Norwegian sovereign wealth funds want to make a difference to climate change and all these big sovereign wealth funds at the moment are trying to do that, instead of buying green bonds, which give you virtually no interest rates, why don't they start forgiving the debt of carbon intensive economies, which is South Africa's one of them through our coal, and say, look, we'll forgive you that debt if you all the new money you put into your businesses, you put into renewables. Because at the moment, a lot of these countries around the world can't go into new projects and renewables because they simply can't afford to. Well, maybe that's a way you can help the climate and do it a different way. So that's just something to take away. And sorry, there's another thing I just remembered. Here we um, go. ESG. Yes. ESG is becoming a bigger and bigger hot topic. I mean, yeah. personally, I think of a lot of it's marketing hype. But where I do think there's huge opportunities in ESG is around impact investing, you know, building schools, building healthcare, I mean, hospitals, et cetera, helping the, helping the communities live a better life. And I listened to a very good article, I mean, very good report by Andrew Cantor from Future Growth, who's yeah. quite famous in the markets for being, you know, having very strong opinions. And he was saying, you know, don't go the ESG route in equities because in South Africa that's pretty hard to do because a lot of our companies aren't ESG more or very obviously ESG friendly, he said, buy it for the debt markets. So I, I think, you know, if you're looking for an ESG opportunity in impact investing, uh, I think the ESG space and debt could be quite interesting in South Africa. Talking about coal, and this is another one, this, is, this comes hot on the heels of people that say that inflation is not transitory. It's actually a reality. In the UK yes. today, I saw a feature on the BBC. They have fired up two old coal-powered power stations in the UK uh, because the weather has been so still over the last six weeks or so. Uh, so there's no wind. So the wind power, which generates yes. so much, uh, is not doing as much as it should do. Uh, so they've had to go back to coal. Uh, also, gas prices are so high that they can't rely on it. It's just so expensive. And Norway can't ex- export enough because they've got so much demand from elsewhere. So the UK is not getting as much Norwegian gas as it would. Uh, there's been a couple of nuclear power station outages. So the price of energy, if you're a factory now and you say, right, I've got a, a really good order that I need to fulfill and I need more power, the price of power has gone up over 10 times in the last year. This time last year, you could have bought it for, I can't remember what the, the actual increment is, but it's, it was something like £25 per something. It's now £240 per something in the UK. And if that's not inflationary, I don't know what is, Joanne. That's massively inflationary, and I think... You and I have talked about it before. I actually bizarrely think in the short term, and maybe in that sort of three to four year period, ESG could be highly inflationary for the world. Because, you know, you talk about things like coal and nobody wants to go near coal at the moment, doesn't want to put any money into new projects because, you know, heaven forbid, it's not ESG friendly. But let's take oil. 
Oil's another one. Nobody wants to admit they've bought BP or Shell or any of these companies because that's not friendly for ESG. But those companies aren't getting new capital and they're not putting money into new projects. And the result of that, when you don't have capex in a lot of these commodity companies, you find supply constraints leads to higher prices. So ESG, even though it's the right thing to do for the planet and we've got no choice anymore, has got an inflationary impact exactly on your coal example. Joanne Bainham is from Sterling Private Wealth. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.